Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Falling in love is the best feeling in the world. You see stars, you feel giddy, but sometimes that makes you do crazy things, and sometimes that means murder. Just because a story starts out with Once Upon a Time doesn't mean it ends happily ever after. Welcome to Crazy in Love, a production of KT Studios and iHeartRadio. Today's guests are producer Jeff Shane and Emmy Award-winning true crime podcast producer and host Lauren Bright Pacheco. Lauren co-hosted, narrated, and produced the critically acclaimed first season of Happy Face, Murder in Oregon, and the Murders at White House Farm podcasts. She is currently working on a new podcast, Murder in Miami. Episode 28, The Case of the Genius, The Control Freak, and the tragic wedding day. Annie Lee was born in San Jose, California. Her parents immigrated from Vietnam and always had dreams their daughter would become successful. From a young age, Annie seemed like she would live up to her parents' aspirations. Described by friends as sweet, spunky, and smart, Annie had a 4.28 GPA and was her high school's valedictorian and voted to be, quote, the next Einstein by her classmates. 
With her pick of colleges, Annie accepted $160,000 in scholarship money to attend University of Rochester, where she majored in cell development biology and minored in medical anthropology. While in college, Annie found a good balance between her studies and making friends. She was known as upbeat, friendly, and always smiling. Both her teachers and friends said what made Annie unique was her personality. While she worked hard and cared immensely about school, she was also energetic and boisterous. One friend remembered Annie as, quote, a mouse that roared. In Rochester during her freshman year, a friend introduced Annie to Jonathan Waldwaski. She immediately felt drawn to the Long Island native, but at first they were strictly friends. As time evolved, it became romantic. As the pair got serious, they both decided to go to different graduate schools, which for Annie was a difficult decision as she didn't want to leave Jonathan. But Jonathan supported her career wholeheartedly. He would never want her to pick between him and her job. Following their college graduation in May 2007, Annie headed to Yale University for her graduate program. Jonathan headed to Columbia to get his doctorate in physics. Almost two hours away from each other, the distance would be hard, but with buses and trains, the couple was committed to making it work. At Yale, Annie's plan was to earn a doctorate in pharmacology. She dreamt of one day helping cure diabetes and cancer. In July 2009, after dating for more than six years, Jonathan took Annie out for a day of their favorite activities. They took a walk in a park, had an all-chocolate party, followed by a gathering with friends. Then Jonathan got on one knee and proposed. Here's Jeff. So the wedding was on for the fall of 2009 at the Northwoods Club in Syosset, New York. And Annie and Jonathan planned to exchange their vows in a beautiful outdoor garden setting that included a koi pond and a waterfall. Sounds just lovely. While the wedding sounded great, Annie did joke to her friends that Jonathan was upset he would have to miss a New York Giants game to get married. But that, I think, was just a joke, and they were both very excited about the upcoming nuptials. Annie, specifically, she was described as a girly girl. She loved to go shopping, and especially shoes. So she was very excited to get her wedding dress and to get to be the beautiful, blushing bride. Lauren, do you know anything else about the couple and their upcoming wedding? Well, they seemed very romantic and adorable. Their special song was Jason Mraz's Lucky, and one lyric in particular stuck out to the couple, and that was, Lucky, I'm in love with my best friend, which I think speaks volumes. You know, Jonathan's sister said that she knew that they would be together forever when Jonathan actually let Annie cut his hair. And, you know, between school and her fiancé and friends, Annie was really, really busy. But that said, you know, her friends described her as a whirlwind of energy. But no matter how busy she got, apparently she was the kind of person who always had time to prioritize her friends. She was a great friend and the kind of person who, you know, offered to help her friends with their resumes, personal statements, and cover letters as they applied for internships and jobs. So as busy as she was, she was also very motivated to show up for other people in a really meaningful way. And I think, you know, that's reflected in the kind of relationship she had with Jonathan. They were best friends on top of being soulmates. That's great. I'm always in awe of people who can kind of 
be very successful in their professional life, their personal life, and still manage to help other people. I mean, it's, it's amazing that it sounds like she kind of did it all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with the intention of wanting to cure cancer one day, she was really driven and just seemed by all accounts to be a really principled good person. Right. Like she had so much drive, but that, that didn't stop her from also being an empathic functioning member of society. Like she wasn't a one track mind. She could kind of balance both sides of her life. Absolutely. With 160 wedding invitations sent out, the wedding was starting to feel more real. Things seemed to be going well, but could hyper-organized and thoughtful Annie be getting cold feet? Pre-wedding jitters are completely normal. I mean, I had them myself. I remember losing a ton of weight before the wedding and not necessarily even in a good way. And, you know, I wasn't alone. That I think it's 40% of women report having some kind of apprehension or cold feet before their wedding. And Lauren, it's interesting you point that out because despite them being common, those signs should not necessarily be ignored. We did a little digging and found that newlywed wives who were plagued by doubt before the wedding were two and a half times more likely to get divorced four years later than wives who were certain they were making the right choice. So basically that says that if you're not sure before the wedding, it doesn't bode well for the longevity of the marriage. True. But I mean, I think that everybody has insecurities or tiny little bit of nagging doubts, but whether or not this couple had them, who knows? By all accounts, it seemed that they were the perfect couple. Yeah, I think people surmised later that maybe Annie had some cold feet, but Again, that's normal. And she has so much on her plate and she's been, you know, long distance from Jonathan for so long. So maybe it was, you know, we haven't been together in the same room as a couple in, you know, for a long time. Maybe that was causing some pause in her mind. And keep in mind, she had huge ambitions. I mean, curing cancer isn't a small ambition. So she was obviously of a career track mind as well. And maybe when push came to shove, she was afraid that the relationship could derail her ambitions in terms of succeeding. On September 8th, 2009, just five days before the wedding, Annie left her apartment and rode a shuttle bus that took her the two miles to Yale Sterling Hall of Medicine. She was wearing a green top, brown skirt, and brown penny loafers. And when she got there, Annie swiped her key card at 10.09 a.m. Then she went down to her lab for what she thought would be a normal day at work. At 12.40 p.m., a fire alarm went off, causing the entire building to evacuate. According to witness Raymond Clark, who worked as a lab technician, Annie left the building between 12.30 and 12.45 during the evacuation in her lab coat. After that, Annie seemed to vanish into thin air. By 8 p.m., Annie still hadn't come home and her roommate Natalie started to get concerned. Natalie tried to get a hold of the young woman to no avail. An hour later, Natalie called Jonathan to ask if he'd heard from Annie. Jonathan told Natalie he hadn't spoken to Annie since 8 a.m. that morning when she was on her way to work. Jonathan and Natalie took turns calling friends and family, but no one had heard from Annie. At midnight, now officially scared, Natalie called campus police to report Annie missing. Take a listen to the police's initial reaction to her disappearance. We have many physical security items in, in place 
to help us with this investigation, to include over 70 cameras. So the next morning after Annie goes missing, the police go to her office in the lab to, and find, to see what's going on. And they find no signs of a struggle. What they do find, though, is her keys, her purse, and her cell phone. Her wallet still had cash, and her credit cards were still inside. Having covered a fair amount of these cases, that's the first thing kind of cops look at is, is this a robbery? And if her, all of her valuables are still, including cash, it seems like it probably wasn't. The only thing missing what from her stuff, though, was her Yale ID and key lab card. Police also started to look at her cell phone records, and she hadn't made any calls after 10 a.m. And remember, she's last seen around 1230, according to that witness, Raymond. But without her ID or phone, it seemed unlikely that she would have gone off on her own, and it seems more likely that something nefarious had happened to Annie. I would think that campus would have stricter security in these labs, Lauren. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, particularly because this was a research lab that relied heavily on the use of animals for testing. And, you know, so the lab had to have tight security because the concern was that, you know, angry animal rights protesters could break in. So because of that, there were a decent amount of security cameras on the outside of the building. So campus police had footage of Annie walking into the building, but unfortunately that's kind of where it ends. They didn't have the same kind of security camera presence inside the building. So, you know, once she was in the building, there were limited cameras and they basically lost track of her. But, you know, the interesting thing is remember the fire alarm. It is conceivable that Annie could have been, you know, taken out of a side door during the confusion. And so that was initially a thought that she had been removed from the building. But also keep in mind, staying safe was really, really important to Annie and not by any small, you know, relation to her physicality. She was only four foot 11 inches and only 90 pounds. So, you know, look, she knew that she was not exactly a formidable threat to anybody who would do her harm. And that was something that had concerned her because earlier that very year, she had even written an article for the Yale Medical School magazine, and it was titled Crime and Safety in New Haven. And in that article, she actually wrote and offered tips about how to avoid being, quote, another statistic, which is just a heartbreaking footnote to this whole thing. And, you know, despite being a prestigious school, Yale is in New Haven. And New Haven is not exactly a safe town. It has a violent history, particularly with, you know, street gang violence. And that's one of the things that I would have thought that even more than gangs, the obvious suspect in this would have to have been her fiance. It's always the romantic partner that police look at first. And so I would have thought that they would have examined Jonathan almost from the beginning. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Two days after going missing, Annie's fiance, Jonathan, was brought in for questioning. 
And he was very emotional when he talked to the police. He started crying and he told them he had no idea where she could have gone. And while police thought maybe she was getting cold feet and that she ran off in a runaway bride type situation, Jonathan said the opposite. He said she had no idea that she was having reservations about the wedding and things were all great and on track. He also said that the last time they spoke was at 8 a.m. And police obviously asked him where he was the day she went missing. And he told them he had been in Manhattan at his apartment with his roommate. He then went to campus at Columbia in the afternoon. And New Haven and New York City are hours apart. So if he was really there, and it seems like he was, it would be impossible for him to then get over to New Haven and do something to Annie. He even took a polygraph and passed. Police were even saying publicly that he was cooperating with the investigation. So with him kind of crossed off the list as a suspect, no one really knew who harmed Annie or where she was. Yeah. And I mean, you're right. Just in terms of the logistics, there's no way he could conceivably have transported himself from New York City to New Haven, Connecticut. I mean, the traffic alone would have added hours. So there's absolutely no way. I find it interesting about the article she wrote. I wonder, could it be just a a very tragic coincidence or was she feeling like she was somehow in danger or she was personally feeling threatened and that's what inspired her to write that because what happened to her and then having written that article seems like a very weird, odd coincidence. No, and and necessarily having, you know, also being inside the lab, you would not have necessarily thought she would be in danger within the buildings of the institution. But I should think that that's a major concern with young women walking through campus late at night. You're always aware that you could become a victim at any point, particularly, again, back to her physicality. She was 90 pounds. So she was probably even more conscious of how easily she could become a victim. True. And she's also not, quote unquote, a normal student. She's doing something that for some people was kind of ruffling some feathers. And so perhaps she was targeted because of that. And she was so vulnerable because of her small size. Like it was easy to pick her as the target of, you know, our anger about this lab work. The FBI, Connecticut State Police, and New Haven Police were all working tirelessly to locate Annie. The first sign of a crime came on September 12, 2009, when luminol was sprayed throughout the research area. Detectives found what's called ghost rings on the wall. Ghost rings appear when someone has attempted to clean up blood splatter. Detectives now knew that Annie was most likely harmed somewhere in the building. The next day, on September 13, 2009, what would have been Annie's wedding day, officials combed through the building inch by inch. Inside the men's locker room, an odd smell emanated from the wall. At 5 p.m., a cadaver dog led investigators to a metal plumbing access panel that appeared to have a screw missing from it. They immediately removed the loose panel and found a disturbing sight. Annie's lifeless body upside down and decomposing inside the wall. It's just such a heartbreaking coincidence that they find her body on her wedding day and making it even worse when her body was found. Her clothing was in disarray. Her bra had been pushed up. Her underwear had been pulled down. And she was missing a sock that police later found in the hallway ceiling. Everything about the crime scene suggested that Annie had been sexually assaulted and beaten 
before she was shoved into a wall. And, you know, of note, police found Annie's missing ID and a green pen next to her body. Yeah, Lauren, like you kind of just touched on, Annie was savagely murdered. And during the autopsy, the medical examiner found multiple bruises and contusions on her body. She also had a broken jaw and collarbone and a bruise on the back of her head. The ME concluded that the injuries happened while she was alive, which makes this somehow even worse. They also confirmed that Annie died of manual strangulation after she was brutally sexually assaulted. Again, back to her size, how difficult it would have been for her to fight back. But all of her defensive wounds were in keeping with somebody who really fought as hard as she could before her life was taken away. And after Annie was found, her friends were understandably inconsolable. They held a nighttime vigil on the Yale campus, and 600-some-odd people attended her funeral. So there was a tremendous outpouring of grief and mourning. And while Jonathan didn't speak at the funeral... He did serve as the head usher, and he wore what would have been his wedding ring to the funeral. And having covered this story specifically during your time in daytime television, do you remember the reaction or the feeling when you heard about it or what people were saying when this was happening? None of it made sense. It would have had to have been an inside job. Somebody who was willing to commit that kind of violence inside a medical building would have been pretty clear as to where they could get away with things and where the struggle, you know, the sound of the struggle would not raise immediate suspicion. So they were obviously aware of the security in the building, but also think of the cleanup. It took the police a long time to find those blood stains, And so the person obviously, again, had access to all the things that you would need to clean up a crime of that magnitude. So I did think that from the beginning, it did not make sense that a stranger had committed the crime. And it also didn't really make sense that the fiancé had committed the crime because he wouldn't have had the access in terms of the security card to get into the places where you would have had to have gotten into to commit the crime or to hide the body. That's a really good point. I also wanted to ask you too, I mean, you've covered in your work as a true crime producer, very gruesome crimes and murders and things like that. And so strangulation, what does that say to you as a method of murder? Like, what does it say about the killer or the victim or their relationship? I think that strangulation in particular is one of the most intimate ways to kill a person because it is always about power. And there is a cruelty because you are more often than not killing the other person with your bare hands, but you could stop yourself at any point. And so you're literally taking away the person's breath and watching them die in a slow and painful way in front of your very eyes. So sexual abuse, you know, of this sort is about control and power. And the strangulation is another layer on a very evil onion of power and inflicting pain and control over one's victims. Let's stop here for another break. 
going back to strangulation, the first podcast that I did, Happy Face, covered Keith Hunter Jesperson. And Jesperson was infamous for strangling and sexually assaulting his victims. And it inevitably comes out of the need to control, but also a deep-seated insecurity. And that's something that immediately resonated with me about the way in which Annie was murdered. Somebody felt the need to control her. Somebody felt the need to put her in a position where they felt more powerful and superior. Do you think that the police would take that information and they use all that in their investigation when they're looking at potential suspects who would have a vendetta against Annie or a a desire to harm her in such a brutal way? I think so, because it becomes a crime of passion. You know, it becomes a very personal crime. And that's why I thought that the likelihood was she knew the person who took her life. Strangling also takes longer, I think, than people think it does. And which to me, that speaks to, and correct me if that's wrong, but I think that speaks to someone who knows the schedule of other lab workers, other people in the building, like they knew they would have the time to, to execute this murder and then clean it up, like you mentioned, which would not be an easy task. No. And so you would have to be pretty confident that you weren't going to be discovered in the process. Investigators began to look at the entire staff and students of the five-story, 12,000-square-foot building. There were approximately 150 people who had daily access to the lab, and each one was being treated as a suspect. Most of Annie's co-workers were cleared after eyewitnesses and their access cards determined their whereabouts during the time period in question. Police zeroed in on around 20 people who were in the building at the same time Annie was, without alibis. By now, all students and staff had been cleared except for two outside contractors and one lab technician. The lab technician was 25-year-old Raymond Clark, the same technician who had told police he had seen Annie leaving during the fire drill. Raymond willingly gave his DNA to the police. 12 hours later, the results came back a match. Raymond Clark's DNA matched the DNA found at the scene of the crime. On September 17, 2009, Raymond was arrested and charged with Annie's murder. Take a listen to the chief of police discussing the crime. You know, the only person that really truly knows the motive in this crime is the suspect. What made him do what he did? And we may not know till trial, or we may never know. It's pretty incredible that Raymond not only was speaking to the police this entire time and like gave them a pretty important detail, which is that he saw her leaving the building that they used during their investigation, but that he willingly gave over DNA knowing that it would most likely come back a match. I don't know. I just find that very interesting. And something else that's interesting is that remember that green pen, Lauren, that you mentioned at the scene of the crime, that also became a big part of nailing Raymond to this murder. On the sign-in sheet the morning of the murder, the same one Annie signed in when she got to the building like she did every day. Raymond signed in with a green pen, but he signed out that day with a black pen. So it seems likely that he accidentally left the pen in the wall with Annie's body. And it wasn't just the pen, which could be considered circumstantial evidence, even though it seems pretty damning to him. Police also found traces of Annie's blood on his boots. The big question was, who was Raymond and why did he do this? 
And, you know, in terms of Raymond, please forgive the pun, but the more the police dug, the more it became apparent that everybody did not love Raymond. You know, multiple witnesses came forward and basically they painted Raymond as an absolute control freak who made a big deal about cleanliness and lab protocol in particular. And Raymond was repeatedly described as a man who seemed to have two starkly different personalities. One was this outgoing, uber-competitive, all-American guy, and the other was this abusive control freak who was allegedly violent with his exes. And that kind of ties back to what I said about the control of strangulation and, you know, sexual abuse, that this is somebody who's threatened in some way, shape, or form by a female. And police found that Raymond had even once sent Annie an angry email, scolding her, basically, for how she handled lab rats. And Annie apologized. Evidence also showed that the day Annie disappeared, Raymond had sent her a text asking her to meet him to discuss the cleanliness of the mice cages. And that kind of goes back to how the killer knew where all the cleaning supplies were. You have somebody who is obsessed with cleanliness, they're gonna know where the bleach is. Detectives also surmised after the fact that Annie was likely the object of Raymond's infatuations. He had a crush on her apparently. And basically it looks like Raymond forced himself on her and being the mouse that roared, Annie fought back, and valiantly too, but her size was no match, and there was a struggle, and Raymond killed Annie. And so while it seems like he had a fair amount planned out, what he didn't expect was that fire alarm going off. Which is interesting because I think when I first heard the story, I would assume that the killer pulled the fire alarm in some sort of ruse to get everyone out of the building or cause a distraction, but it turns out police don't think those two things were connected because when they went back to look at the surveillance footage, Raymond could be seen exiting the building in his white lab coat, sitting down on the steps with his head in his hands. He repeatedly was looking back at the door, looking very stressed and anxious, which knowing what was going on inside that lab makes a lot of sense. Once everyone was able to go back in the building, Raymond went inside and he proceeded to cover up the evidence of what he'd done by dragging her body to the locker room and shoving her inside the wall. Police looked at the key card records that showed him moving from room to room as if he were searching for a place to hide the body. On the way back to the lab, he found her sock in the hallway and just shoved it in the ceiling panel. But here's the thing. So with a scientific background, he would have known it was a matter of time. It's not like he stored her body in an airtight container. He would have known her body would have been decomposing and almost like, you know, the telltale heart in Edgar Allan Poe. That decomposition was the ticking time bomb that ultimately her body would be found. I think that there is something really chilling and a little bit powerful about her body being found the day she was supposed to be married. I'd like to think that Annie had something to do with that because her loved ones must have just been in so much grief, not knowing what had happened to her. But, you know, I, I wonder if Raymond ever had the thought of going back and removing the body at some point, but as the investigation heated up and it became obvious that he was being scrutinized, he couldn't sneak back in and dispose of the body. 
But as long as that body was in the wall, he was going to get caught. I know, because on the one hand, it seems like he kind of tried to plan this out. He lured her into the lab under the guise of talking about cleaning the mice cages, and he cleaned it up pretty well. I mean, it took days, like you said, to find any traces of blood. But then he doesn't put the body in a good place, and he's telling police the wrong story. So it just seems very sloppy in a lot of ways. I don't think he planned to kill her. I don't think he invited her there planning to kill her. I think he invited her there to maybe put themselves in an intimate position where he could express his feelings or make some kind of a move on her. And she rebuffed his advances. And that was the trigger. You know, that was his fragile insecurity. That was something that summoned this deep rage. She obviously did something that triggered his insecurities or fragile male ego. There was no reason to kill her. She wasn't a threat to him physically. And your work covering various murders is snapping something that happens where people just kind of something switches and they can't control themselves? Yeah. I mean, going back to Keith Hunter Jesperson, It was always when women either ridiculed him or played upon his insecurities about his intelligence. You know, in his mind, Jesperson fancied himself some kind of rock star Casanova. And when women saw him differently, that was this trigger that set him off in a blind rage. And he snapped. So I do think that you have Raymond having a violent history with ex-girlfriends. Obviously, he wanted Annie to be his girlfriend. And when she turned him down or called him out for making advances, that triggered something in him. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of similarities between the two, those two killers, like the same kind of anger towards women and the hostility and when they don't get their way. But the loss of control is one thing, but the actual remorse is another. Jesperson didn't have remorse. It looks like Raymond did. When he goes outside and he holds his head in his hands, he obviously realizes that he's done something horrible back inside the building. I kind of saw it as he's stressed because he was in the middle of cleaning up a murder and now he might get caught. But that's an interesting way to look at it. Why would he have chosen to murder somebody inside a building where he did research that he obviously had to go back into day after day during the investigation? It's a great point. I mean, yeah. And then he's lying to the police about seeing her leave, knowing that all these, that the, that the key cards are the dead giveaway that they will tell once they figure that out. I mean, he, there's no way they would, his story doesn't check out once they figure that out. And probably realizing he lost his green pen at some point and running about looking for it and then realizing that that could be the thing that that tied him to the crime. It's just so sad. And and, and my heart goes out to Jonathan. I mean, to have lost your soulmate is horrible enough, but to lose somebody in such a tragic, violent and senseless way My heart goes out to both families. In March of 2011, instead of going to trial, Raymond Clark accepted a guilty plea that came with a 44-year sentence. 
He is scheduled for release on September 16, 2053. Those who knew Annie often said that the brilliant and vivacious woman would have changed the world. She did, after all, go into medicine to help others. Now, with her gone, we can only wonder what Annie's impact might have been. Lauren, I mean, your work speaks for itself. It's prolific with things like murder in Illinois, Happy Face, and murders at White Horse Farm. Can you tell us what you're working on next? Yeah, I'm actually working on a really intense story about a detective who goes to work for an agency in Miami in the 80s without realizing that it was a front for a CIA-sanctioned drug and arms smuggling operation. And it, of course, involves a murder. And so it is called Murder in Miami. And that will be out probably in September. Shameless plug. If you're enjoying Crazy in Love, leave us a review. Season three of the Piketon Massacre, Return to Pike County, is in the works. We want to hear from you for the upcoming season. Do you have a story to tell, a connection to Pike County, or is there another case local to Pike County that you can't let go of? Please email info at kt-studios.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at KT underscore studios. Crazy in Love is produced by Stephanie Lidecker, Jeff Shane, Chris Graves, and me, Courtney Armstrong. Editing and sound design by Jeff Twa. Crazy in Love is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Stay safe, lovers.